Hebrews chapter 2, beginning to read with verse 5. For he has not put the world to come of which we speak in subjection to angels, but one testified in a certain place, saying, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you take care of him? For you have made him a little lower than the angels, you have crowned him with glory and honor. You set him over the works of your hands, you have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he hath put all things in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him, but we see Jesus, who was for a little time made lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for every one. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. As you know, if you've been involved in understanding the doctrines of grace any period of time whatsoever, this is one of the, verse 9 is one of the favorite verses that those who deny particular or definite atonement uh, like to cite. And once they have cited it, they think that it is absolute proof that we must be nincompoops for believing what we believe. And usually they put it just like that. <coughs> in doing that, of course, as, as many of us has, have recognized, perhaps all of us have recognized, they have totally ignored the context in which this verse is written. Not only in the, the context which is on the surface, but they have also ignored the purpose for which the passage is written. One of the things we mentioned in the first hour is that the, the scriptures have not been given to us as a theological manual. Instead, they have been given to us in a pastoral way. These things are written to these people not simply that they might know more, but that they might do better. Many of them were in danger of falling away, apostatizing. And the writer is urging them not to go back, go ahead. We have in Christ, the fulfillment of the old covenant blessings. And why would you want to go back to the promise? Why would you want to go back to the picture? Why would you want to go back to the type when you have the reality present? And in the course of that argument, he, he tries to deal, I think, with, with a common objection to the Messiahship of Jesus Christ. They were expecting, the Jews were expecting one thing, and Jesus came along and did something altogether different from what they were expecting, but precisely what they should have expected. He said to the two on the road to Emmaus, O fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. He didn't say you had a problem with your theological understanding of those passages. He said your real problem was that you looked at the passages and you had a heart problem. And you believed what you wanted to believe. You saw what was on the surface of things and rather than thinking about the passages, you, you read over them and understood them as you wanted to understand them, as they appealed to you. Now, they were not the only ones guilty of that kind of treatment. Every single one of us is guilty of approaching the scriptures just like that. We come expecting to find our own pet doctrine there, and we come away having found it, amazingly. And if you want to search for proof text to prove your position, and we always need to be aware of that, you can always find a proof text to prove anything that you want to believe. And if you want to find a proof text for universal atonement or for 
hypothetical universalism, you can easily find it in this text because the text is right there. All you have to do is read the words that he might taste death for everyone, or as the old King James puts it, for every man. I always feel sorry for the ladies when I read it like that because they seem to be left out. It is in the masculine and consequently translated every man, but that seems to be limited atonement in itself, doesn't it? Because it's only for men. <laughs> we, we have to be so careful in this day when people have changed the meaning of words. But you see, the context of this passage not only tells us in verse 10 that what he is talking about in verse 9 is the many sons whom he brings to glory. It goes on to tell us that they are his brethren. He is not ashamed to call us brethren, for he is one in nature with us. He, like us, lives his life on earth in confidence on his Father. He talks about those children whom God has given him. And because the children were made partakers of flesh and blood, he likewise himself also took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. He did not take hold of angels, but he took hold of the seed of Abraham. You see, the point is, our Lord Jesus has given himself for his people whom the Father gave to him. Over and over in John's Gospel, he refers to those whom the Father has given to him. And if we wonder about the design of the atonement, and in reality that is the issue. Once we, do, once we answer the question, what was the design or the intent of the atonement, or the redemptive work of Jesus Christ, then we have no difficulty at all, I think, understanding for whom he died. But the question we have to ask is, what did he intend to do when he died? Once we have answered that, it is clear that he did that for his chosen people whom the Father had given to him. And if we are wondering what the intent of that atonement is, it is very clear in the, in the gospel according to John what our Lord intended to do. This is the Father's will who has sent me, that all which he has given me I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. Back in chapter 3, the, the scripture tells us that the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. And one of the things he has given into his hand is the bride. Where did he get the bride? Had she yet come to him? Had they been brought together? No. But she was his. How was she his? And the answer is she was his by divine donation. The Father had chosen her and brought her to the Son. He says the same thing about his sheep. Other sheep I have, which are not of this fold. Them also I hope to bring. And I'm going to do my very best to do so. No? No, that's not what he says. Them also I must bring. And they shall hear my voice. And there shall be one fold, one shepherd. There's no contingency. I will, they shall. And it's fixed, it's settled. And the passage that we're looking at here in, in Hebrews chapter 2 tells us that our Lord did indeed taste death for everyone. But the everyone for whom he tasted death were the many sons that he intended to bring to glory. 
They are his brethren. They are those children that the Father has given to him. They are the sanctified ones. They are the seed of Abraham. But there's another context that we need to look at, and it's very important that we understand this context. And that context is the context of the whole of Scripture, particularly that passage that the, that the author cites back in Psalm 8. I know there are some who will disagree with my position on this particular psalm and on my approach to the psalms generally, but um, I don't know any major doctrine of Scripture or perhaps even any minor doctrine of Scripture with whom someone does not degree, uh, disagree with someone else. Um, I, don't think, I don't think we're going to come to full and total agreement doctrinally while we live here. We're all too full of sin for that. We're all too full of pride for that. We're all too, too full of our own presuppositions for that. Um, we need to acknowledge the fact that we can, we can be wrong and probably are a lot of the time. But thank God we have our brethren who come to us and say to us, Pastor, I heard what you had to say, but I don't find that in the Scripture. Let's look, let's look to see what the Scripture has to say. Boy, we need, to, we need to be willing to sit down with our brothers who disagree with us in hand-to-hand -hand combat and say, what does God say? I don't care about what the confession of faith says. What does God say? Amen. Now, I respect the confession of faith. I think it's important that we do that. We don't want to kick uh, the sticks apart that someone else has gathered. We don't want to knock the legs out of those who have gone before us. We want to stand on their shoulders and see if we can see better than they saw. But we have to grapple with the text of Scripture ourselves. And so we're going to disagree. And the purpose of getting together and speaking the truth in love to one another is what? It's unity, isn't it? We don't come to unity by ignoring differences. <laughs> you don't come to unity by saying, well, you just believe what you believe and I'll believe what I believe and you preach your gospel, I'll preach mine, but at least we're preaching Jesus. Well, what, what Jesus are you preaching? See, there's the issue. And for that we need doctrine. And so there are going to be some disagreements, but that's okay. As my, my good friend John Riesinger taught me to say, you, just, you have just as much right to be wrong as I have to be right. So that's... <laughs> Psalm 8. Go back there with me for a moment. In what sense is this a messianic psalm? That is, what is in what sense is this a psalm that looks forward to Jesus Christ, the anointed one of God? The psalmist begins, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. We're going to look at that same principle as we come back to Hebrews chapter 2 where the writer tells us in verse 10, For it was fitting for him by whom are all things, or for whom are all things, and by whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory. God's concern on the earth is not to make us happy primarily. God's purpose on the earth is to establish a glorious name for himself. And all that he has done, he has done to make himself look good. God is self-centered. God loves himself above everything else and everyone else. I get a little weary with these people that tell me that God made man because he was lonely and needed fellowship. I don't know what he did for those eons of eternity past before we were ever created. 
No, God made us that he might manifest his glory in us, that he might make a name for himself. And here the psalmist says, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. You, you have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babes and nursing infants, you have ordained strength because of your enemies that you might silence the enemy and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him or that you come to his aid, that you take care of him, that you rescue him in his trouble? For you made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor. You made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, even the beast of the field and the birds of the air and the fish of the sea that pass through the paths of the sea. O oh Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. At first glance, as we look at this passage, we, 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 we are reminded of our fallenness. When I look about the heavens, the psalmist says, perhaps he's thinking about those times that he looked up at the sky when he was shepherding and saw the majesty and glory of God. City dwellers can't appreciate that. Those who have lived in the country, especially in the mountains on a clear winter's night, have seen the star-spangled skies. What a beauty that is and how we're filled with a sense of awe and amazement and insignificance. And that's what the psalmist, I think, was feeling. Oh, Lord, when I see your heavens, the works of your hands, the works of your fingers, the moon, the stars which you have ordained, what is feeble, helpless, insignificant man that you are mindful of him? Look at him. He's a tomb dweller, as we saw last night. Look at him. He, he boasts about his freedom while he rattles his chains. That's man. What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you visit him? We need to have a healthy understanding of the doctrine of total depravity. We have to understand how far man has fallen. But let me tell you something. You can't really understand how far we have fallen until you understand from, where, from whence we have fallen. And in this psalm, the psalmist tells us what we have fallen from. He, he obviously alludes back to Genesis chapter 1. And let me just read the, the text for you. And God said, Genesis 1.26, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. Sounds strangely reminiscent of this passage, does it not? But in the other direction. Sounds like this passage. When he says, you have made him a little lower than the angels, he is saying, you have made man in your image. And I believe that when he says you have made him in your likeness, he is simply telling us what he means when he tells us you have made man in your image. Man has been made like you in every way that we can share your attributes. We talk about the communicable and the incommunicable attributes of God. 
And uh, we can understand that when we think about communicable and incommunicable diseases. A communicable disease is something that I can catch. If you have it, I want to stay away from you. An incommunicable disease is something that you may have, you may even be dying with it, but I don't have to worry about it because you cannot communicate that to me. The attributes of God that are communicable are those things that we share of His likeness. And one of the things that God is doing with us in the work of sanctification is He is making us again in the image of Him who created us. That image is the image of Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God. And we are being made more and more like Him. You see, not only is He truly God, perfect God, very God of very God, but He is truly man, perfect man, very man of very man. He is just as much man as if He had not been God. He is just as much God as if He had not been man. And when we are conformed to the image and likeness of Jesus Christ, we are being conformed to Him in those communicable attributes that he displayed while he was here on the earth. One of the things we need to aim at as God's people is to bear those likenesses to him. And that's, what, that's really what the scriptures tell us to do, is it not? Why should we love those that persecute us and hate us and say all manner of evil against us? Why should we love our enemies? And the answer is that we might be like our Father who is in heaven. He makes his Son to shine on the just and on the unjust. He causes His reign to fall on the just and the unjust. If you salute those who salute you, says Jesus, what do ye more than others? If you give the high five to a New Covenant theologian, dispensationalist or amillennialist, and you reject everybody else, what do ye more than others? Don't even the, don't even the scribes, don't even the Pharisees do that. What, dif what, makes, what makes you different from them? You see, we need to bear the likeness of our Father. Amen. God is faithful. We read earlier this morning, for he that promised is faithful. Boy, we need, we need to, to work on our generation, this new generation coming up. We don't have any faithfulness today, no commitment. They say, I'll be there, and they ain't there. Where are they? Well, something came up. Got a better deal. Something more important. Had to go, who knows, to the spa or whatever. Oh no. If we're Christians, we better be faithful. I always taught my kids, if you say you're going to be there, be there. If you're not going to be on time, if you're held up, call. Let them know you're not going to be there. It doesn't take five minutes to do that. If you've said before God, I'm going to honor and love and cherish this woman till death do us part, do it. Do it. We can talk about the other attributes of God. Love. Jesus said a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. Well, that's a tall order. And we'll never get it completely right while we're here, I promise you. Boy, we better be aiming at it. One of the old Puritans said, He who shoots at the moon, though he miss it, will come closer than he who shoots at a bush. <laughs> we may not be perfect in this life, but buddy, you better be aiming at it. You see what 
the psalmist says God made man like himself. He reflected the glory of God. And one of the ways in which God made man like himself is just as God is the absolute sovereign over all his creation, so Adam, in his proper place, was a relative sovereign, a ruler in God's creation. He had dominion over the works of God's hands. And the reason the creation today groans and travails in childbirth pain even until now is because man has been toppled from his right position by sin. But you see, not only does the psalmist look back to the time when man was made, but he looks forward to that time when man is remade. He not only talks about the old creation, he now talks about the new creation. He talks about the fact that man is intended for glory. A friend of mine once sat, once sat down a, a, across from a prostitute. She'd sold her body. She'd defiled herself. She'd sold drugs, used drugs, the whole business. And he took her hand in his and he said, Darling, you were made for better than this. You were made for better than this. And listen, we have a message for our generation. We have a message for them. I don't want to sound arrogant. Maybe I am. I don't know. I don't think I am. But you know what? We are some of the only ones who do have a message for them. And why sit we here until we die? It's wonderful to rejoice in the truths of God. But there's a world out there that is dead in trespasses and sins. And they are going to perish for eternity under the eternal wrath of God unless God in mercy gives them grace to believe the gospel. And they're not going to believe the gospel unless we preach it to them. Can God bring them in contrary to means, without means? Can he bring them to himself into the church building where God's people are meeting to hear the God? Can he do that? Yes, in instances he has. Will he? He may. Must he? No. God intends for us to go outside. After we have been fed in the assembly of God's people. It's only one time, by the way. I know I'm supposed to be in Hebrews. You don't have to remind me. It's only one time. One of the things that I appreciated about Dr. Johnson yesterday is he wandered so far away and was able to find his way back. That's, that's great. I hope to find my way back. The only, there's only one time in the whole New Testament scriptures where an unconverted person is said to be in the church. And it's sort of a happenstance. What if an unbeliever stumbles into your assembly, 1 Corinthians 14? What's he going to think if you're all speaking in tongues? You see, the, the church is not the place for sinners. The, the church is the place for, God, well, un, unconverted sinners. <laughs> it is the place for sinners. But you see, it's the place where God's people come to get equipped that they might take the message. Oh, we need to be busy taking the message. We got the message. We know what man was when he came from the hand of his God. We know what he is when he came from the hands of sin. We know his fa fallen, broken condition. We know that he's fallen and can't get up. We know what sinners are in their, in their regenerate condition. 
And we know where we're going in glory. The amazing thing in Romans chapter 2, as Paul talks about, as he describes those who are the true people of God, he, he talks about those who, who seek, are seeking glory and honor and incorruptibility. What audacity to think that we're ever going to go to glory and be honored and so forth. No, that's not audacity at, at all. It's, it's simply believing the promise of God. This is what the psalmist tells us. And I found it interesting that he talks here about seeking glory and honor. Glory and honor. The same thing in Hebrews chapter 2. We see him crowned with what? With glory and honor. And so he talks to us about the fact that we are bound for glory. Bound for glory. We can't miss it. We're on our way. And nothing's going to stop us. And the reason for that is we have a representative. As you look around you, does it appear to you that everything is placed under the feet even of redeemed men? Or that it's likely to be any time in the near future? Or even the distant future if we are allowed to continue as we are? What do you think? Do we have a handle on it yet? Do we yet see all things put under the feet of redeemed man? Is he yet restored to that place that God intended for him? No, the whole creation groans and travails in pain together until now. And we ourselves also, even we redeemed saints of God, continue to groan, waiting expectantly for the sun placing, namely the redemption of our bodies. It's a glorious truth to me that it's going to be better than this. I don't know about you, but I think life here is somewhat overrated. The old writers, you know, especially when you're trying to fit into the ambiance of today's, uh, you know, we're here to have good time. Everybody ought to be amused. That, that means not to think, I believe. You, don't, you stop musing. And that's what everybody's done. We've all stopped thinking. And you start trying to fit into this, this mess we've got. And we ought not to be trying to do that. But, you know, just here these people are running around like a bunch of village idiots. And, and uh, I'm concerned. What's wrong with me? <laughs> I saw a little Fireside cartoon. It had a cow with a big brain. Maybe you saw it. Is it only Claire, with her oversized brain, they were outside the slaughterhouse, you understand. Only Claire, with her oversized brain, wore an expression of concern. <laughs> if, you're, if you're not concerned this morning, if you're not concerned about the situation we're in, then you probably don't have the intelligence to understand the gravity of the situation. We are in a mess. We don't have a handle on everything. We are not in dominion. And we're not going to get dominion. I don't care how many Christian schools we start. We're not going to have the dominion. I don't care if we do institute the mosaic economy all over again. We're not going to have the dominion until our Lord Jesus comes again. So we do not yet see all things put under redeemed man. But we see Jesus. That's what we see. We see him. Amen. We see him with the eye of faith. We see that one who was for a little time made lower than the angels. 
He came and took on our nature, yet apart from sin. He wept with us. He felt what we feel. He was confronted with those things that we are confronted with. He struggled. He said, now is my soul exceedingly sorrowful unto death. And what shall I say? Father, deliver me from this hour. But for this hour came I into the world. You think that wasn't a real struggle? Do you think our Lord Jesus was not deeply moved when he preached on the sovereignty of his Father and his disciples went back to the extent that they walked no more with him? Do you think that did not move him emotionally? Was he cold and, and did he say, well, they went out from us because they were not of us? And uh, that's what heretics do. So good riddance. That's not our Lord. Let me tell you this, when people come to the place where you preach the gospel and you are faithful in preaching the word, and you've poured over the message and you've prepared your soul before God and they come in and they stick up their nose at what you're saying, don't be cold and callous toward them. You need to feel like our Lord Jesus felt. He turned to his disciples and he said, you're, you're not also going to go away, are you? And gave Peter a great platform for saying, Lord, to whom shall we go? For you have the words of eternal life. And we know and have believed that you're the Son of God. That's the kind of Savior we have. He was one of us. He took upon himself our nature. He himself bore our weaknesses, our sicknesses. He knew where we live. That's the kind of Savior we have. He knows the depths of your heart this morning. He's feeling what you're feeling. Maybe you've struggled with pain. And that's a struggle. Because you don't want to tell people about it because they don't want to know about it. They really don't. How are you doing? Oh, I'm doing fine. Oh, wish I could tell them. Wish they could sympathize with me. Let me tell you something, you can tell him. You can tell him. He was one of us. He has, he has our nature. He feels with us. We have a sympathizing Savior. And let me tell you something. One of us has gone to glory. <laughs> one of us has gone to glory. But it wasn't just one of us. It was our captain. It was our leader. The word that is translated captain here may mean a hero who founded a city, gave it its name, and became its guardian. It may refer to the head of a family or the founder of a philosophic school. Or it may return to a military commander who went ahead of his men and blazed a trail for them. And all of these meanings could fit our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the captain of our salvation. He has gone ahead of us. He has cleared the way for us. He has torn the veil for us. And we now are able to enter into the very presence of God where he has gone. Well, we have an anchor, both sure and steadfast, and that enters into that within the veil. And he does so because he has made propitiation for our sins. When the scripture talks about propitiation, it's talking about that satisfaction that our Lord Jesus offered to his Father. To appease his wrath. And as we saw already this week, it is not that our Lord Jesus turned the wrathful God into the loving God. No, here in his love, says John, not that we loved God, 
but that He loved us and gave His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. The wrathful God is the loving God. And in His love and mercy and grace, He gave His Son that He might satisfy His own wrath against sinners so that sinners might be brought to His bosom. We have an anchor. And where is it? The writer tells us in Hebrews chapter 6, it is that which entereth in within the veil where Jesus, our high priest, a priest after the order of Melchizedek, has gone for us. And all we have to do is follow the rope. <laughs> and we'll come to the anchor. Boy, what a Savior. What a Savior. He's in glory this morning. We see Jesus. Where do we see Him? In the first place we see Him made a little lower than the angels for the suffering or that he might taste death for everyone. But look ye saints. The sight is glorious. See the man of sorrows now from the fight return victorious. Every knee to him shall bow. Crown him. Crown him. Crown the Savior, King of kings. For he is crowned with glory. And he is crowned with honor. But you know he's not there merely as the eternal God. He is that, never ceased to be that. But when he came to earth, he became something else. He became the incarnate son. It is the son of man. And as the son of man that he suffered for us, it is as the last Adam, our head, our representative, that he has gone to the cross, that he has gone to the tomb, that he has gone to the throne. And you know what that tells me? It tells me you can't keep me out of there. That's what it tells me. And it tells me you can't keep me out of there because I am in Him. I am justified this morning because I am in Him who is the justified one before God. His resurrection vindicated every claim of His. It showed that He had finally finished with that debt of sin which all His people owed so that that debt we owed could not be placed on us again. As someone alluded to old top lady's hymn yesterday, payment got my God cannot twice demand first at my bleeding surety's hand and then again at mine. If I am in Him, then I, I have absolute infallible assurance that I will be with Him. One of the old Puritans said, when our Lord Jesus ascended to glory, He had His people tied to His girdle. You can't keep me out of there. But you see, the point is, our Lord Jesus came not to fix up the old creation. He did not come to repair all the sons of Adam. Instead, he tells us, I, Behold, I create a new heaven and a new earth wherein dwells righteousness. And he has come to establish that new creation. And if any of you are in Christ this morning, there is to you a new creation. All things, that is, that which belonged to the old creation, has passed away. And behold, all things have become new. Now, our task is what? Our task is to walk in newness of life. To make it so, I'll be new if I walk in a new fashion? No. We walk in newness of life because we belong to a new realm of life, a new creation. And we are to, we are to live like new creatures. 
And when you see this passage in that light, it becomes very clear, I think, that the every one about whom he is speaking is the every one of that new creation that he has established in fulfillment of Psalm 8. We are going to reign with him in fulfillment of that because he now reigns. We see him crowned with glory and honor. And he is crowned as the head and representative of the new creation of which we are a part. There are two points made in the New Testament scriptures concerning our responsibility. The one is see what you are in Christ. And the other is simply be what you are in Christ. Very, very simple. Our task is to say what is different about my walk as a believer and that of the old covenant believer. What privileges do I have? What responsibilities do I have? What blessings do I have? In Christ. What am I? And you'll remember that's exactly the, the, the outline that Paul follows in nearly all his epistles. Paul says, look what you are in Christ. Think of Ephesians, for instance. And then in chapter 4, he says, therefore, walk worthy of the calling with which you've been called. Look what you are in Christ, and now be what you are in Christ. You see, that's the, that's the outline. And oh, how, how glorious it is. To see that we are no longer bound to this earth in Him. But we are seated together with Him in heavenly places. But see, that brings up a little problem. I don't, I don't feel like I'm not earthbound. <laughs> How about you? I was aching a little bit when I got up this morning. My throat is hurting. This weather's wreaked havoc with my sinuses up here. Some of you got up with severe pain today. It may be that recently you heard word that one of your loved ones has passed, passed away. It may be that you have a son or daughter who is unconverted. Perhaps your husband does not love Christ, is not a believer as you are. And you've prayed for him, you've longed to see his conversion, and your heart is burdened today. I know some people here like that. And our cry is, oh Lord, how long? How long? The old writers talked about this life as a veil of tears. We don't talk much about, it, about that anymore. We're here to have a good time. But they understood that we ain't home yet. So there's that already not yet tension that exists. Are we seated together with Christ in the heavenlies? Yes, we already are. But we're not yet. Because we still have to live here. But the glory is because he's there. We know we don't have to stay here. And when we are here, and we're going to be, I agree with the quote yesterday. When we are here reigning with Christ on the earth, it's going to be a whole lot better than this. A whole lot better than this. Whatever, you, whatever position you take, it's got to get better. And we earnestly expect that. 
There is a sense in which the promises of God have yielded themselves to fulfillment in the new covenant. And now those very fulfillments have yielded themselves to additional promises. So that we continue to look forward to even bigger and greater things in the future. It's going to get better than this. Well, I'll tell you, one of the things I've enjoyed immensely this week is the beautiful singing. I felt like I was in the midst of a great choir. Absolutely gorgeous. We have about 25 or 30 people that meet with us on Sunday morning, and we don't despise the, the day of small beginnings. And we, we love to meet together with the people of God, but we're not very good in the music department. It sounds terrible sometimes. And boy, to come to a, to a gathering like this and hear these voices blending together, singing praise and glory to our God, he has hushed the law's loud thunder. He has quenched Mount Sinai's flame. Pause, my soul, adore and wonder. Beautiful. But you ain't seen nothing yet. You ain't seen nothing yet. I think about that time when we're going to gather around the throne of God. And because there is one on the throne who is worthy of everlasting honor. We're going to sing, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and honor and wisdom and strength. And honor and glory and blessing. And then it, that's not going to be 150. That's going to be myriads and multitudes of redeemed saints and angels praising Him whom we long to praise better. It's going to get better than this. And that aching back of yours is not going to hurt anymore. And those tears that have been so present upon your cheeks are going to be wiped dry by our, by our great Savior. What a day. What a day. And it's guaranteed because he's in glory. Now for a moment, let's just suppose that the text is talking about everyone without exception. If the text is in fact given us as a guarantee that all of those who are represented by him are certain to go to glory, then what does the text have to teach us? For you see, he does not say he is going to do his best to bring many sons to glory. Or he is going to be, make it possible that they might be brought to glory. But he says that this one who has sent his son, him for whom are all things and by whom are all things, this one actually brings many sons to glory. It is effectual in nature. So if Jesus Christ guarantees that all for whom he died tasted death in this passage, will go to glory, then what does the passage teach us? And the answer, answer is, it teaches us that all of this creation is going to be renewed and every individual is going to be brought to glory. You've got universalism in the raw. But you see, when we see that the text is talking about the representative work of Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, the last Adam, he has accomplished redemption for all those who are part of his creation. He has justified, as Romans 5 tells us, all in him through his one act of obedience. Now, just for the next few minutes, I want us to look at the next verse, verse, uh, verse 10. We need to adjust our focus in evangelicalism today. And we, we don't need just a little bit of a, of a nudge. We need a major adjustment. Because we have bought into the secular humanism of our day that tells us that, in fact, man is the most important being in the universe. I appreciated 
what Dr. Johnson had, had to say yesterday about the lamb in the center of the throne. I did not know until that point that Charles Spurgeon had a message on that and I began to feel like I must have plagiarized him someplace along the line because I made a point of that earlier. Um, honest, I never read Spurgeon's sermon. I'm gonna go home and do that, but, but that's powerful, powerful stuff. The lamb in the center of the throne. But you know, the other thing you notice in that passage is that the throne is the center of everything that's going on there. That tells us something. At least we ought to get the picture. As we mentioned earlier, God loves himself supremely. God is self-centered. Someone may be offended by that and say, wait a second, I thought we ought not to be self-centered. And the answer is we ought not to be. And the reason we ought not to be is because God alone has the right to be. The reason we have difficulty with the whole idea that God is the sovereign, that he rules and reigns in the affairs of men, that for him are all things and through him are all things, is that we want to be God. I'm going to confess my carnality. I watched a movie a while back. It was a good movie, very uplifting movie, about a bunch of Roman Catholics. The movie was called Rudy. And Rudy was all upset because he couldn't play ball for Notre Dame and he went to see the, one of the priests, so-called. And he said to the priest, I'm having a real struggle. You know, that, this doesn't seem to be working out the way I had it planned. And the priest said this, and, and I thought it was profound. He said, two things I've learned in my ministry. One is, there is a God. And the other is, I'm not him. <laughs> I think he should have said, I'm not he, but anyway. There is a God, and I'm not. Well, you learned that lesson, and that's a powerful, powerful lesson. We get into trouble when we decide we are going to be God. It is in reality, Brother Zaspel, what you were saying the other night when when, when we find ourselves in the midst of trial and difficulty, and we've seen it, haven't we? And we, we begin to say, why me? What we're really saying, are we not, is if I were in control of this thing, I'd do a whole lot better job than you're doing with my life. If you really loved me, you wouldn't have done this to me. I'm important. And look how you've treated me. You ever read, read The Mercies of a Covenant God by John Warburton? He talks about the time that he was seeking a pastorate and, and was rejected. He really wanted it with all his heart. And he, One of the things that strikes you in that book is his absolute honesty. You know, he doesn't pull any punches about his depravity. Most of us, when we write autobiographies, we're, we're the hero of our own story. You know, but not John Warburton. Oh, he says, I was so grieved. I went out and got between two hills, he said, where no one could hear me. I got down on my face. And he said, I cried out against God like a lion bereft of her whelps. How could you do this to me? And he said, if I could have, I would have pulled God from his throne. I would have trampled him underfoot. And I would have reigned and ruled the universe. Let me tell you this, every single time we sin against God, that is precisely what we are seeking to do. Precisely. We are saying, I want to be God. And I have a right to be God. 
For I am the master of my fate and I am the captain of my soul. It's amazing that Henley wrote that on a sickbed. Most of us are humbled when we're on the sickbed. At least we should be. We ought to be reminded of our own frailty, our weakness, our helplessness. But he defiantly in his humanism declared, I am the master of my fate. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. What arrogance. But brethren, that's precisely what we say when we sin against our God. I'd do a better job of running the world than you're doing, God. Thank God we can't do that. We'd be in a mess. It became him. It was fitting for him. That is the redemption, the, the work of, uh, of atonement and propitiation and reconciliation that our Lord accomplished on the cross must be accomplished in such a way that it would, number one, bring glory to his Father and that it would be fitting with his character. There have long been arguments about whether or, God, whether or not God could have done it any other way. And I suggest to you that if God could have done it any other way, he would have. There was but one. There was but one. The Lord Jesus. Only He is God. Only He is man. And only He can bring the two together. There is no other sacrifice. So this must be done in a way that was fitting to His divine justice. God does not love us so much that He just sweeps our sins under the rug and says, that's okay, I'm a jolly old fellow, I'll forgive you. That's the God of the average evangelical today, I'm afraid. Oh, God loves you. He's shown you how much he loves you by sending his son to the cross. Now, if you'll just open your heart and let Jesus come in. That wasn't the purpose of the cross. The purpose of the cross, as John chapter 3, very, uh, pardon me, Romans chapter 3 very clearly tells us, is that God might be justified in justifying sinners. How can God, who is holy, righteous, unbending in his requirements. How can that God look on vile, guilty, rebels such as we are and declare us to be spotlessly righteous in his sight? And Calvary answers the question. It is the propitiatory work of Jesus Christ that alone answers the question. God has satisfied his own wrath in the person of his Son. And his justice is satisfied. Justice smiles. What is it in the, in the hymn? Justice smiles and ask no more. Justice smiles and asks no more. That's the good news we have to preach. Secondly, the text tells us something about that one whose justice must be satisfied. It tells us that everything is for him and everything is through him. I heard John Riesinger preach years and years and years ago, and he preached on Romans chapter 11, I think it's verse 36, that says of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory unto the ages. Amen. And he said that is the sum and substance of our Calvinism. Of him are all things. 
He is the one that has ordained all things. Not a sparrow falls to the ground without your father. That doesn't simply mean your father knows it. It means your father has planned it and he is in control of it. I'm glad, I'm glad God's in control. I hate these guys that come into the hospital and say, well, everything's going to be all right no matter what. Because God loves you too much to allow your loved one to die. I want to bust them in the mouth when they say that. I really do. I was reading, just give me a moment, if you will, to look back at Hebrews. This is an aside. If you don't want to listen, don't. Go back to Hebrews 12. I was talking to a woman a couple of weeks ago who told me that God wants all his people to be rich and healthy and prosperous, you know, in every way. And if you don't, then you don't have enough faith. And I thought about, did I say Hebrews 12? Hebrews, Hebrews 11. I thought about the faith chapter. And I thought, sure enough, she's right. Because listen to what, listen to the summary of this whole matter. Sure enough, she's right. Look at it. And what more shall I say, verse 32? For time would tell, uh, fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, also of David and Samuel and of the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms. Boy, you talk about prosperous. And worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword. Well, that's great. I like that. I don't have to suffer. Sounds good to me. I'm going to escape the edge of the sword. Because I have faith. And if I have faith, nothing bad will ever happen to me. I got the promise of God right here in, Rome, in Hebrews chapter 11. Read on. Okay. They quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle. Turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead, raised to life again. There are others? Well, let's look at the other. Others! Were these people believers, these others? Yes, the text tells us that they were. Huh? By faith, exactly. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance. I don't like that. I want to be prosperous. I want to be rich. I want to be healthy. I don't want to suffer. But the text says others who had faith were tortured, not accepting deliverance. Why? Because it's going to get better than this. That's why. That they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trial of cruel and mocking and scourgings. Yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, all these, having obtained a good testimony through 
faith did not receive the promise, God having provided some better thing for us, that they should not without us be made perfect. How could they endure such things? Look back at chapter 10 of Hebrews. We have that fearful passage in verse 26 that speaks about the apostasy of those who had already forsaken the assembling of themselves together. They weren't just skipping Wednesday night prayer service. They'd gone back. They weren't coming back again. They'd forsaken the assembly. And then the writer says, if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remains no longer a sacrifice for sins. You reject Jesus Christ as sacrifice. All the others have been done away with. There's no more sacrifice. There's no hope for you. The only thing that you have to look forward to is a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation that shall destroy the adversary. Anyone, verse 28, who rejected, and here's the same thing we saw earlier on in chapter 2, recall. Anyone who, who rejected Moses' law died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much sore punishment do you suppose he will be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a a common thing, and insulted the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Thus uh, says the Lord, and again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days. Remember where you used to be. A lot of us need to do that this morning. Recall the former days. Remember the former days? You remember that time that, that the very name of Jesus sent chills up and down your spine because you knew here is my redemption. But we've become so intellectual. We've become so sophisticated in our religion that we're afraid to be moved anymore. Someone, perish the thought, might think we're charismatic. Someone might even think we're having a good time in church. I can't imagine anything worse than having a good time in church with God's people. That's horrible. Uh, Bapticostals. All right. We've got some Bapticostals down here. I think God's people ought to have a good time when we get together. I remember the former days when we used to get together. Well, some of us used to get together when we were in college. We were, we were ostracized from the, and cut out from the main herd because we were speckled birds. And no one wanted to have anything to do with us, so we would huddle. We would go to our own company as did the early disciples, and we'd breathe out our woe to one another. And we'd cry out, O Lord, Thou art God, who made heaven and earth, and the sea and the dry... We, well, that was exciting. That was exciting. We'd get together with people, they'd preach to us, and well, how the Lord blessed our hearts. We went away saying, did not our hearts burn within us as He walked with us in the way, and as He opened unto us the Scriptures. For some of us, that's become a distant memory we know more than we did, but we feel less than we did. Yeah. And brethren, that not, ought not to be. The more you know, the more you ought to feel. Amen. I wish I had in my thumbnail as much knowledge, or in my head as much knowledge as, as uh, Dr. Johnson has in his little finger. I really do. But let me tell you something. I believe there's a man here who feels what he believes. You can't go on. For 80, 81 years, whatever it is, with just a head full of knowledge. 
head full of knowledge won't keep you in the trial. It really won't. You can't make it through the trial without a head full of knowledge. Keep that in mind. You better not just say, I'm going to go back to the Psalms and read them and, and see if I can find something there that makes me feel warm. You better be able to take the Scripture and reason on the basis of the Word of God from this situation to the conclusion God wants you to draw in this situation. Thinking is not forbidden in the Christian church. <laughs> Believe it or not. You don't have to check your brains at the door. One of the problems with, with, with people who do not understand the Scriptures adequately is that we read the Scriptures with our brains out of gear. We ought to engage our brains before we begin to read. And God intends for us to, to understand. It is when we forget the truth of the Word of God that we find ourselves in spiritual trouble. But just knowing the truth is not going to help either. Just knowing it is not going to help. You better have a personal relationship with the God of the Bible through Jesus Christ. Go on in chapter 10 with me for a moment. Recall the former days in which after you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle with sufferings. Sounds like fun, doesn't it? He's not looking back to that time when our hearts were burning, with, burning in us so much as he's looking back to those former days when in spite of all the trials, God was triumphant and he gave us the victory in Christ. You were in a great struggle with sufferings. I feel so bad as a pastor because I know there's no one here who's had it as bad, badly as I've had it. <laughs> you haven't had any struggles like I've had. You haven't experienced anything like I've experienced. I really envy you guys. We, we think that, like that sometimes. But here are people who went through struggles. And it was ordinary. It was normal. It was not out of the ordinary for them. Partly why you were made a spectacle both of the, by the reproaches and tribulations. Partly why you were... You became companions of those that were so treated. In other words, you didn't let your brethren suffer all by themselves. You said, let me help. For you had compassions on me and my chains. And joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods. Wait, hold, what did it say? He doesn't say you grudgingly gave up these goods that you had treasured for yourself. He says you joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods. You said if it takes plundering everything I have for me to keep my Lord and be faithful to Him, you take it. I don't want it. That's what they said. Let the world despise and leave me, says the hymn writer. They've left my Savior too. Human hearts and looks deceive me. You pastors know what that means. Human hearts and looks deceive me. Thou art not like man, untrue. And while thou shalt smile upon me. And while thou shalt smile upon me. Is that what we're looking for? Or the old writer said, Careless myself, a dying man of dying men's esteem. Happy, O God, if thou approve. Though all beside condemn. Yeah. It's hard to stand before an august body like this and not care what you think. I'm being honest with you. 
It really is. I want you to like me. And you want me to like you. But brethren, we better stand on this. If liking me means I have to leave my Savior, I don't care what you think about me. That's what they're saying. How did they do that? How did they joyfully accept the plundering of their goods? And the answer is knowing. Knowing. They had to know something. Knowing that you have a better and an enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. Therefore, do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward. We are often cautioned lest we become so heavenly minded that we become of no earthly good. I have not yet met the person who has become so heavenly minded that he is of no earthly good. I know hundreds who are so earthly minded that they are of no heavenly good. What the New Testament Scripture constantly tells us to do is to be heavenly minded so that we might function properly on earth. These people did what they did, suffered what they suffered, accepted what they accepted, gave up what they gave up because they had their eye fixed on a better and enduring substance. Notice the word, enduring, which implies what? It implies forever, but it also implies there's a contrast between that and this. This is not going to last. I better not hold on to it. One of those missionaries that was slaughtered by the Aka Indians said he is no fool who gives up that which he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. But you see, if we're going to be faithful to him who called us, we, we have to do that. By remembering who he is. Again, it's the matter of self-centeredness as opposed to God-centeredness. Why is God doing everything that he's doing? Well, it's for me. Well, it is. But it's for me that it's because it's for him. He's doing it for me that he might make a great name for himself. Oh, what a powerful argument that is in prayer, brethren. When we go before the throne of God and we say, Lord, honor your name. I like that story about Rolls-Royce this morning early. That was great. Why does God care about me? Because none of God's creatures have ever broken down. We might spit and sputter, but we never break down. We might think these feeble legs of mine will never bring me to glory. And we're right. Left to themselves, they won't. But I'm not dependent on these feeble legs. For my Savior has come to me where I was. He's sought the wandering sheep. He's loved my poor soul. He hasn't said, come on, I'll lead you back. No, he's put me on his shoulders. And he carried me all the way back to the fold. I'm dependent on him. It became him for whom are all things, through him are all things, in bringing, in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. He's our head. He's our representative. He's there in our place. And if you are in Christ this morning, you can absolute, absolutely bank on it. You will reign in glory with him. Him who is Lord of lords. 
and King of kings, crowned with glory and honor. May God bless the word to our souls this morning. You sometimes hear sermons and feel like saying, wow, wow. 1156. Page number is 42. Sorry. Come here, sir. I need to leave here about 25 after the hour. What time is it? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> they forgot to change that clock. Right? Okay. okay. Questions for him on his message in Hebrews. Thank you for your song. Thank you for your song. Figure I came up twice before. I might just walk, make it three times. In the book of Hebrews, do you see any relationship between the priesthood and the atonement? in terms of how it's brought in from the Old Testament. You didn't mention the, uh, the whole concept of atonement being wrapped up in the priest and the offering. I was wondering if you could uh, just speak a little bit on that. I know you only have about 30 seconds. but I'm just kidding about the time. Okay, uh, because I see the atonement, the whole scene of the atonement in the Old Testament is very much involved in the priest and the priestly act and Christ mm -hmm. being the priest. I thought maybe you could speak on that yes. for a second. Uh, I mentioned this morning that the word justification that Paul so often uses is never used in the epistle to the Hebrews. And the reason for that, I think, is because what the writer to the Hebrews does is to use a different construct for describing our relationship with God, our entrance into God's presence. And he does that based on the, the Jewish approach, tabernacle, the high priest entering into the holiest of all, the offering of the blood, and so forth. So yes, there's clearly a connection between the priesthood of Christ and the, and the, uh, the uh, atonement or the work of reconciliation and so forth in the epistle to the Hebrews because it goes back to that old covenant um, typology in which Christ is pictured forth as our great high priest and our sacrifice so that he comes and, and offers the sacrifice of himself as the high priest for his people. Is that hit at the question you're asking? Randy, would you say that the whole concept of that sheep or lamb, goat, whatever it is in the Old Testament, and people laying their hands on the animal, basically sets forth the whole concept of a definite atonement? I think I understand your question. I, I, used to have, I had a friend in college who said that he believed in five points of Calvinism. And uh, we, we used to get together on uh, every Thursday night, have dinner together, and we would talk for hours about, about um, this whole matter. And one of the arguments that I like to press upon him was the fact that when the high priest, having slain the goat, uh, sent the other goat away into the wilderness, went into the holiest of all. He went there, not for everyone in the world, 
but he bore the names of the twelve tribes of Israel on his breastplate. I think it's probably from, from that and from the fact that our name is graven on the palms of his hands that Top Lady said, uh, my name from the palms of his hands eternity will not erase. Impressed on his heart it remains in marks of indelible grace, and I to the end shall endure as sure as the earnest is given. More happy, but not more secure, the glorified spirits in heaven. And the reason for that is because he, in the presence of God as our great high priest, bears our names on his hands and on his breastplate, as it were. So yes, I clearly see that as a, an argument for a particular redemption. Okay, it's been a good day. In discussing the doctrine of limited atonement, we, we always should put it in the context of the priesthood of Christ. And Christ is prophet, priest, and king. And the Arminian really has no place to put the priesthood of Christ in the sense of his atonement. He can't put it under his office of prophet. He can't put it under his office as king. And he conceives of priesthood only as prayer. So that his idea of priesthood and the priesthood of Christ begins in heaven. But the primary job of the priest was not prayer. The primary job of the priest was to make sacrifice for sins, according to Hebrews 5. And, and his sacrifice for sin, where he caught the blood of the basin and took it into the presence of God to show that sin had really been paid in a sacrificial death, he pleaded for the same people for whom he shed the blood. And when they put their hands on the head, it was identifying their sins. And then he had the ephod with the 12 tribes on his breast and also on his shoulders. So that when he stands before God on the Day of Atonement in the Most Holy Place, it has nothing to do with the Jebusites or the Canaanites or the Amalekites. It had to do with the 12 tribes of Israel. And we must emphasize to people that this work of sacrifice and then the work of prayer is coextensive. He prays for those for whom he shed the blood. And when you bring that over into the New Testament, then we have irrefutable proof that he prays not for the world, but for those thou hast given him out of the world. And again, it's a coextensive work. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lay down his life for the sheep. And if that's not true, then you have the ridiculous situation of having Christ literally die for men for whom he does not pray, for whom he does not seek the Father in order to see them forgiven. The primary argument that convinced me of limited atonement was in Spurgeon's sermons. Uh, I became a Calvinist not through the theologians, but through Spurgeon. And uh, my whole theology was shaped by Spurgeon. But one of his primary arguments is that if Christ died equally and bare in his own bosom the penalty for all men without exception, then he literally looked into hell and saw men who were already there and bear their sin on the cross. So if you want to believe in universal atonement, at least you've got to begin with the New Testament. You cannot anyway believe that Jesus died for Ahab and for the wicked men in the Old Testament because they were already in hell at the moment that he made his atonement on Calvary's cross. You were going to say something? Yes, and you're, and you're finished. When you're finished, we're done. Okay. 
I just wanted to, to build on what you had just said about the relationship between priestly oblation and intercession. Okay. Um, priestly oblation and intercession. The priest offers sacrifice only for the, or offers sacrifice for the same people for whom he intercedes. And I was thinking about the passage in Hebrews chapter 7 concerning the priesthood of Melchizedek where the writer says, because of the unchangeable priesthood of Christ, a priest after the order of Melchizedek, wherefore he ever lives to make intercession for them. And the question is, who are the them in the passage? He is able to save completely or to the uttermost all those that come to God by him, seeing he ever lives to make intercession for them. So that he's actually making intercession for those who come to God by him. Robert Haldane in his book, his commentary on Romans in chapter 5, made an excellent statement that went something like this. Those who feel constrained in preaching the gospel, unless they can at once tell people that Christ died for them in particular, do not understand what the gospel is. In other words, if I have to tell you that Christ died for you, and if I don't tell you indiscriminately that Christ died for you, I'm not preaching the gospel. Mr. Haldane says that person does not understand what the gospel is. Then he said, it is the gospel that Christ died for the most guilty sinner who will believe. Not that he died for every man, whether he will believe or not. And I think that's significant in terms of that text in Hebrews chapter 7 in verse 25 where he says he makes intercession for those who come to God by him. And every, every person who comes to God by him has, inter, has an intercessor in heaven. If you don't have an intercession in heaven today, you have no evidence that Christ died for you on the cross because the two things will inevitably go together.